This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to a Turn on the Jets digital special presentation. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And this is part four of our four-part in-depth discussion with Manish Mehta, the columnist and beat reporter for the New York Daily News about his career covering the New York Jets. And I want to pick things up where we left off last week, Manish, talking about your reporting methods. And some people say that a lot of what you do is drive narratives. And one example of this would be a story that you wrote toward the end of the 2016 season about quarterback Mitchell Trubisky. You had written a column that said that the Jets, quote-unquote, had the hots for Mitch Trubisky. And the basis of the column was that you had spoken to one rival scout who had said that the Jets really loved Trubisky. And that was it. It was just one quick quote from that particular rival scout that drove the column. And I was curious as to how you would say that that would be a news story, that one rival scout thought that the Jets thought that Mitch Trubisky was good. Again, if you look at the timeline, we're talking about November, there's no way they could have fully scouted him. It just seems like a weird story to write based on that one little quote. It was something where a lot of Jets fans were trying to look towards the next season because they were really bad, and so the hope was maybe they would get into the quarterback market. Do you understand the criticism there of people that are saying, okay, you're taking one little quote that doesn't necessarily mean anything from one anonymous scout from another team, building an article around it to try and generate traffic and conversation and clicks? Because that was what a lot of people had said at the time. Well, I quoted one person on another team, one mm-hmm. scout on another team. That doesn't mean I only spoke to one person because I did not okay. speak to just one person. I spoke to a lot of people. Sure. <laughs> just because I quote, that's the thing. I think the fans still probably don't quite understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if I quote one person in a story, that doesn't mean that's the only person I talk to. In fact, there's a 100% chance that that's not the only person I talk to in the story. It's just the only person that's quoted in the story. So there is a, an important difference and distinction there. And you're right about this. The story is written in November. Clearly, the, the the team doesn't get their full evaluation until months later. So that absolutely should be taken into account. But when the team is doing their legwork as fiercely as they were on Trubisky at the time, that's absolutely newsworthy. Because I don't think that many fans, frankly, unless you know, you're really in tune with the draft, even knew that much about Mitch Trubisky. Uh, so that's why it's newsworthy. Uh you know, ultimately, when you go through the whole evaluation process and then even after the season, that's when the coaches even get involved. The coaches aren't even involved in November. It's just a preliminary groundwork. It is important to note that uh, without getting into too many details, you know, scouts talk and uh, and you can get a sense how many times a team goes into a school to check out a player. You can get a gauge on what their interest level is in a particular player. And it was sufficient enough to write a story. Let's put it that way. When you have a story that's based on one anonymous quote and you're saying you talk to other people for the story, why not include some of what they said as well, even if it's anonymously? Because wouldn't that strengthen the story? Well, sometimes it's not. It's out of your hands. As a reporter, you ask mm-hmm. everybody you talk to, do you mind if uh, I quote you? Yeah, look, 100% of the time, well, I shouldn't say that, 99% of the time, nobody wants to have their name attached to something like this, something like this. They will not have their name attached. So the next question becomes, okay, well, do you mind if you get quoted without attribution? That's another way of saying, uh, you know, an unnamed quote. Without attribution essentially means, I'm going to use your words, I'm not, I'm not going to say who you are. I'm just going to describe what your position is, what your job is. If they say yes, 
that's that's what you want. I mean, obviously, you want something with their name, but short of that, you want a quote without attribution. If you don't get the quote without attribution, uh, the next best thing is, well, give me information on background. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about this particular issue or this particular player? Uh, and I think this kind of goes back to what I had said earlier when I was talking to you about walking into a locker room, talking to a, a player about maybe some extenuating circumstances. Uh, I'm not quoting that player in any way. I'm, I'm using the information that they have so I can have an informed opinion when I write my story. So when I write the story, it, it, you know, it comes across as, as it's my opinion. And it is my opinion because it's based on information that I get on background. So that's a, you know, that's a valuable tool for a good reporter. You get information on background. So, uh, if that means at the end of the day you quote nobody or you quote one person without attribution, then so be it. But the information in there, in that particular story, is accurate, and that's ultimately what you're aiming for. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Wasn't there a way to say according to multiple sources, though, without actually naming anybody? Well, the, word source, the word source is a... <laughs> Depending on who you talk to, is you know, mm-hmm. it's a taboo word. Sure, uh, there's people in the Jet organization throughout the last decade who don't like the word "source." Mm-hmm. They're more than happy to share information with me. Uh, they just don't want the word "source" in there, and I respect that. You know, I, I might try to talk them out of it, but if they say, "Hey, look, you know, this is what's happening. Use it, you know, use it for background, and and you can formulate your opinion and your thoughts on on this information." But this is the reality of what's happening. I don't want to be used as a source. That happens. All the time, it happens more times than I think a reader truly understands. So uh, I can't say, according to a source, if the person I'm talking to says, "Don't use the word source." Mm-hmm. I mean, that if I do that, then I'll never speak to that person again. That person, you know, will, will not share information with me. I respect that. That's part of the reason why you get a good information. You have a trust built up between you and the other person. If that person is comfortable with you referring to him as a source, then you go with that. Mm-hmm. If that person is not comfortable using you, uh, using him as a quote-unquote source, then you respect their wishes. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. I really wanted to ask this question not because I'm trying to accuse you of anything. It's more because I wanted to hear your side of this because obviously the prominent instance of you being accused of this was when Keith Olbermann did it on ESPN. We both know about that with Rex Ryan. So I wanted to hear your side of this because it's something that has been said about you and I wanted to hear what your explanation was for how these things go down. And I thought it's really interesting the way you just explained it learning about exactly how you can frame an article. And even though you might only say one source in there, there would have been multiple people that you talked to. And that's why I wanted to know about being able to balance talking to certain people as opposed to not talking to certain people. Like, for instance, in that article you wrote about Darrell Revis not wanting to play anymore or phoning it in, and you said that you had spoken to a Revis confidant. Was that something where you only had information from one side? Because a lot of people took that to mean, and I know you know where I'm going with this, Boomer and specifically on WFAN kind of accused you of getting your information from somebody that might have had an axe to grind with Revis without hearing from the other end. How do you, in general, balance that? Like, if you get good information from one side of a story, whether or not you get as much information from the other side, and I think this is what we were talking about with the Mike McCagnan thing, and again, I'm not saying that Mike McCagnan was your source, but that was obviously the perception of it. If you do get more information from one side 
of something than the other. How do you balance how you report that? Well, I reach out to all sides. As I said before, three sides, not mm-hmm. just two. I, I reach out to all sides. I cannot force people to dive deep on a particular issue mm-hmm. if they don't want to dive deep. If they just want to give me something cursory, you know, that's their prerogative. Uh, if they want to go deep, that's their prerogative as well. Uh, I get all the information that I can, and then I survey the information. It's hard for me to answer this particular question because it's different for every story. Like, How do I divvy up the information that I get if I get more information from side A versus side B? It's really a case-by-case basis. All I can do is to reach out and gather the information that the people are willing to provide to me, and then I make the my best uh, you know, conclusion as to what makes the most sense based on the information I have. A lot of that's based on relationships I've had in the past. Has this person given me trustworthy information? Not personal relationships, but just relationships in terms of professionalism and information. How accurate is the information? And there's, there, you know, there's plenty of contacts that I have that I that I talk to on a regular basis. But I take the information they give me with a grain of salt because I know, based on past experience, that the information is you know, sometimes it's. It's solid. Sometimes it's a little shaky, and I have to check on it with uh, other people. And then there's some contacts that I have that have a track record of being spot on, 100% right, dead on information. And that's information uh, that I can only gather through time uh, with relationships that I have built up through the years. Uh, so you have to weigh all of those things. So you know, it's a, there is no blueprint to you know to answer your question. You just have to weigh the information you get. Uh, Consider who's giving you the information, uh, what your, you know, track, what that person's track record is in terms of uh, how accurate it is, or do you need to double, triple check uh, on the information this particular person gives you, or is the information ironclad? Uh, there's just a lot of different avenues as a, that a reporter needs to go through uh, before determining how to proceed with a particular story. But uh, you know, the genesis of it is getting as much information as you can within the time constraints that you have. And then, and as a reporter, that's all you can really do. And then you weigh the information that you get uh, based on the people that gave it to you. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Last question, Manish. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the whole click situation. I wanted to know how you operate in a click world because it's so much different than the world that you came up in where it was much more newspaper-based and now it all involves clicks. So how do you kind of toe that fine line of doing really good reporting and not trying to be that kind of clickbait, tabloidy kind of thing that would draw people to just go click? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I, and I will say this, and I know this. <laughs> I have gone back at people about the click part of all of this by saying this. I've said this repeatedly uh, because I think it's really funny. Somebody will say this is clickbait, and then I will respond, "There's nothing to click. Like there is literally no link to my tweet." Mm-hmm. So I, I don't quite understand how a random thought uh, on a, a random topic, when there actually is no story there. But look, it is—it's clearly different than it was before there was social media, before there was the internet. Uh, all I can do is write good stories, informative stories, and then people will read them. Uh, is the New York Daily News a tabloid? Yeah, it was a tabloid long before I started working there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tabloid. I don't even know what that means because I don't change the way that I write. I write the way that I – my writing, the tone of my writing, the information is because of the information that I get uh, via reporting. But the tone of the writing is a reflection of my personality. And as, I, as has been the common thread throughout the podcast, 
I'm a very passionate person, a strong mm-hmm. person with strong opinions. So I, my writing is going to reflect that. And when you have someone who has strong opinions, clearly that's not going to rub everyone uh, the the right way. It'll rub some people the wrong way. Uh, that's just the nature. That's human nature. Anyone who has a strong opinion, uh, you know, you'll get people throwing darts at them. You'll get people who are all on board with them. That's just the nature of having a strong opinion. But I don't have a strong opinion to gender to engender that response. I have a strong opinion because that's my nature. That's who I am. That's how that's how I've been long before I started writing. That's who I was when I was ten, mm-hmm. when I was twelve, and and anything that I do, you know, whether it was writing or playing sports or or having a debate or discussion about something other than sports. That's just who I am. So I don't really concern myself with how people respond when they, uh, other than, like, again, other than the fact that people say something is clickbait when there's no link. I, I write stuff because I think that it's informative uh, because of the reporting that I do. I take a lot of pride in my work ethic. I'm never going to apologize for my work ethic. I mean, I've had people who've told me that maybe I need to like tone it down and you know take a break from time to time, and they're probably right, but I work hard, and I work smart, and I try to provide information that isn't readily available. Uh, and, and as I said before, I'm not a cheerleader for the team. I'm not out to get the team. But what I think is good reporting, and I think if you talk to any journalist, uh, they'll agree with me, the good stories are the stories that can't be confirmed within a couple minutes. You know, there's plenty of transaction news that fans care about. I totally get it. You know, I totally get it, you know, and I, and I try to provide that as much as I possibly can as well. Kind of like how everybody on the beat was trying to get the story of who was going to be the next general manager first, right? Yeah. Uh, whoever gets that story first is going to get that story first, and it's going to be confirmed by everybody that covers the team within a short amount of time, whether that's two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Ninety-nine percent of the people who care about the Jets are going to be probably at work or out you know, with their family if it happens over the weekend. By the time they find out, they're not going to care who broke the story because Everyone's going to have it. Every outlet's going to have it. So that's the type of story that, while valuable, doesn't provide the insight that if you have a story that can't be confirmed in 10 minutes because the reason you can't confirm it is because it takes a lot of legwork and a lot of reporting and a lot of talking to different people to produce. Those are the types of stories that I care about a lot because those are usually the most interesting stories. Now, Joe Douglas becomes a Jets general manager. Is that interesting? Of course it's interesting, but how interesting is it? Joe Douglas has been discussed ad nauseum, discussed when Mike McCagney still had the job during the draft. Uh, you know, there's a place for that type of information, and it is important to fans. But as a reporter and as a journalist, I should say, probably journalist is a better word, uh, having a story that takes a little bit of time to confirm, you know, maybe a story... Uh, not as in depth as the you know the story I wrote in December about the rift between McCagnan and Bowles, but something as simple as the Jets were in line to trade up with the Eagles to get Nicole Hardman, the Georgia wide receiver. That that's a story that's not going to get confirmed within a minute. It, it'll, you know, if you have contacts and you have sources, you can get that confirmed. But that takes a little bit of time, not nearly as much time as uh, the story I wrote in December about the GM and the head coach. But that to me is an interesting story. Uh, the story that I wrote uh, about the Jets inexplicably trading down twice in the fourth round instead of taking one of two offensive linemen who they believe could be the center of their future, uh, this Oklahoma kid, Drew Samia, uh, or this uh, Arkansas kid, Froholt. Uh, that, to me, is an interesting story. It gives you an idea 
of what the, the, the Jets kind of missed out on, what they were thinking, what they missed out on. Uh, the Miko Harvin one, I guess, is probably a better story uh, in terms of giving the Jets fans a window into what the Jets perceived was an area of need. Because I think that if you talk to Jets fans in the run-up to the draft, wide receiver would not have been one of those areas where you thought the Jets would be super aggressive about in terms of trying to trade up. But they clearly believe that Darnold needs a dynamic playmaker, and they believe that Nicole Hardman can be that dynamic playmaker uh, for this young quarterback. So a story like that is so much more interesting, uh, to me at least, because it gives you, the fan, the reader, uh, you know, just a little peek into what the Jets were thinking. Like, hey, you know what? Yeah, we like Quincy Anunmo, we like Robbie Anderson, uh, we like uh, J- Jameson Crowder, uh, but we still think that we need a dynamic presence at that position, and that's why we were being so aggressive trying to trade up and get this Georgia wide receiver. To me, those are the cool stories. Those are the stories that take time to get. I didn't, that story didn't land in my lap. That story happened because of contacts that I had developed over time as a reporter. So anyway, that's just my take on it. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. He's controversial. He's emotional by his own admission. But he's also broken plenty of stories involving the New York Jets, and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to have him on and discuss all of the big stories that he's broken, some of the more controversial moments in his career covering the team, and learn a little bit about his personal journey. So I'm happy that we could do this in a long-form series. Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope we can talk again soon. Now that you know that I'm not that scary, I don't think I'm that scary. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, this is a lot of fun, Scott. This is, uh, yeah, look, I I understand the Jets' frustration, and and as I said before, I really do want the team to do well because that makes my job more enjoyable. It certainly makes the players and the coaches' jobs more enjoyable, and it makes for a much more enjoyable experience for all the fans. And in the end, if everyone wins, uh, everyone's happy, right? No question about it, and I'm sure that most Jets fans would agree with me. We hope that this is the beginning of a new positive era in New York Jets football with Joe Douglas here, with Sam Darnold in the fold. Things starting to turn around with new stars like Le'Veon Bell and C.J. Mosley. So fingers crossed that the Jets have finally given you a good team to cover for the next bunch of years. Manish, it's been a while, and I think we all are looking forward to seeing more positive articles, not just from you, but from the rest of the beat, not because you're cheerleaders, but because there's good stuff to report because the team's actually good. So with that in mind, I'm sure you've got plenty of things up at the New York Daily News that you're going to be working on over this break between now and when training camp starts at the end of the month. I want people to know what it is that you're working on so that they can go ahead and click, 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 as we were joking before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a big break, obviously, in the NFL. Uh, I'll have my top 20 series of uh, players who I think will have the biggest impact for the team in 2019. It's a countdown, four-week countdown, Monday through Friday, leading up to to training camp. And then then I think uh, the the real fun begins, and we'll see what this, this team looks like under Adam Gase. We're a lot closer to the beginning of the Gase era than many people realize. Training camp is coming up in just a couple of weeks, and then before you know it, the regular season will be here. It's only about two months away. I can't even believe it. We're going to see Sam Darnold in his second year. We're going to see Adam Gase running his offense. We're going to see C.J. Mosley and Le'Veon Bell in New York Jet uniforms. Brand new rookie, high impact, hopefully, fingers crossed. That, of course, is Quentin Williams. So many additions on this team. Of course, we've talked about 
the areas where they still need some help. Maybe Joe Douglas, the new general manager, Bam Bam Douglas, gets some things done, and he's able to bring in some reinforcements through the waiver wire, maybe a trade here and there. We don't know. We're going to have to find out. But it's a real exciting time and an interesting time to be a Jet fan for sure. So make sure that you're reading Manish's coverage over at the Daily News and follow him on Twitter if you're not doing so already. Don't forget to give us a five-star review over on iTunes. It doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't take much time, but it really helps us out a lot, so we appreciate it. Essentially, what it does is it gives us more visibility, so when people do an iTunes search or a Google search for Jets Podcasts, we come up a lot quicker if we have more reviews. So if you like the show and you could do that for us, it would be very helpful. It would go a long way because then when we pitch potential guests on coming on the show, they Google or they go to iTunes and they put in the show. They see all these reviews and realize we're a show with a lot of dedicated listeners, so it's worth their time to come on. So if you could go ahead over to iTunes and take care of that when you get a chance, if you haven't already, two thumbs up. Also, if you could do the same for Joe Blewett on TOJ Film Room and Joe Caparoso's Turn on the Jets podcast, that would be great too. Joe Blewett is doing so much great work on the film side. He's got the audio podcast, but the real deal is the video. If you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, Turn on the Jets TV yet, you really should be. Joe not only breaks down the games during the year, he breaks down individual players. He's even broken down systems. He broke down the Gase offense and the Greg Williams defense. He just went over 1,000 subscribers for the YouTube channel. So again, Turn on the Jets TV. And Joe Caparoso has had some outstanding guests on over the last couple of weeks and months. He was one of the first to get Tony Pauline to come on his podcast and Mike Lombardi. Those are two guys that were at the forefront of reporting the information on the Adam Gase trying to force Mike McCagnan out story. So they had a ton of interesting information. And that's in addition to all the great written content that Joe's been pumping out. His 12 packs have been on the money, and he's been writing a ton of great long-form pieces That's what he does best, and that, I think, is the strength of the written side of TurnOnTheJets.com. So you should definitely be going to the website and reading his written work as well. But as far as the podcast goes, go ahead, subscribe to that right now, Joe Caparoso's Turn On The Jets podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jay Caparoso. Follow Joe Blewett on Twitter. It's important that you do that because Joe posts a lot of the key plays from his film reviews on his Twitter. So if you're interested in learning more about film and specifically if you want to see some plays that will give you a better idea of who's really been good and bad with the New York Jets, you absolutely want to be following Joe on Twitter at JoeRB31. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter too if you're not already at PlayLikeAJet1. Thanks again for listening to this and the other three parts of this four-part in-depth discussion with Manish Mehta, the New York Jets beat reporter and columnist for the New York Daily News. And remember, for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.